Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact, the podcast where we talk about the latest contact center and customer experience, industry news, and insights. Join us as we welcome industry experts, discuss actionable strategies you can apply to your business, and help professionals like you on your path to long-term career progression and success. I'm your host, Sean McIver. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk Time. I'm your host, Sean McIver. I'm delighted to be joined today by Danny Wareham. Danny is the founder and uh, culture and engagement director, culture and transformation of Feargoon. That was founded in April of 2021. And Feargoon operates on the principle of happy bees make tasty honey. They believe that if you have the right people in the right environment and they're equipped adequately, they can provide exceptional services. Positive working structure is therefore key to producing the required results. And Danny, I could introduce you more in full, but I think it's only fair seeing as you're here for you to introduce yourself. Thank you, Sean. And I must say, I'm very impressed with your Hebrew, being able to say Fugun correctly. I think you've done a really good job of introducing that. Thank you. So you've worked with a number of large companies previously. You were with Vodafone. You were the communication and employee engagement manager there. And you've worked in a number of roles actually over at Vodafone. And so I'm going to start off with the obvious question. I had to look it up. Why Feargoon? What does that give everybody the definition of that? (laughs) So I collect words. In my personal life, I collect words, particularly those that don't have direct English translations. And feargoon is one of those words that it doesn't have an English direct translation, but what it means from the Hebrew is the sincere joy and happiness for another person's accomplishments and experiences. And it's that warm, fuzzy feeling that everybody gets when they see something nice happen to somebody else. And my belief is that I personally take a lot of, I'm very grateful for this oxytocin um feel that you get from this particular word. But I believe that the world would be a much richer place if that was embraced far more openly. It's the opposite in schadenfreude, which we British are very good at. We must like watching skateboarders trip over and hurt themselves. I think it says more about our culture. But yeah, Fiergun is the opposite, seeing joy in people's accomplishments. I like that. And it's something that resonates with me quite a lot as well. I'm a huge fan of celebrating the successes of others I think that that's a hugely important thing. And I would counter that as much as we do like a good bit of schadenfreude and watching Fail Army on YouTube, it's equally good to see just as many people watching cute kitten videos when it's just a feel-good sense as well. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's take it back a step then. How did you end up at Fiergoon as a concept, as a word? What led you to realizing actually this is what matters? It's a great question. I worked at a telecommunications company, as you've said, for quite a long time. Although I was there for so long that it feels like I've worked for 10 different companies. There's been so much change. When I started, there was that you could have two handsets and two tariffs, and that was it. And by the time I've left, you've got self-driving cars and drones and so on. But when I left there, I spent a lot of time kind of understanding what it was that drives me now that I'm out of the sort of institution of working in one organization for a long period of time. And what I realized is that all the way through my life, I've always taken pleasure in setting other people up for success. So my, whether that's in my childhood, so when I left high school, I wasn't a sporty person at all. I was a choir boy and a chess captain. And I was kind of forced to take up a sport as part of one of my A-level studies. And it was the first time that 
I kind of belonged. I found that I found a tribe that kind of greeted me and felt like I belong. And as part of that, I was learning how to set them up for success. Where do they catch the ball? Where do they score best from? And all the way through my life, when I was doing this kind of retrospection, I've realized that all the things that bring me the most joy have always involved watching, clapping somebody else on and and seeing them succeed. So when I set up my consultancy, there was no other word that would have fit. It was perfect. So with that in mind then, is that joy in seeing others succeed, that's the cornerstone of the word Fiergoon and also presumably the cornerstone of what you're trying to achieve as a business. Is that correct? It is. And also personally, it's not just a logo type and a strap line and some kind of brand. In my personal life, if I'm organizing a dinner party, I'm not actually the one that's doing the hosting. What I'm doing is letting you enjoy yourself. I'm letting you try new foods that you might not have tried before in a safe environment. I'm trying to enjoy your new experiences. So I think when it's part of your DNA, it's a far more authentic journey when you also do it in your business life too. Understood. So presumably within through that lens then the employee culture, the business objectives, and so on and so forth. How do we go about assessing, first and foremost, whether there is that sense of this fear goon, this happiness in others' achievements? How do you go about initially understanding where you are on that scale of whatever to gleeful fear goon, shall we say? (laughs) So first of all, it's important to understand that fear goon is something that you feel as somebody that's observing. When it comes to the work that I do with my clients, it's far more about understanding what approaches and behaviors do you require to be successful. And in order to understand that, you first have to understand and identify what does success look like? What is your vision? What is your purpose? Where are you going? And if you don't have that as an organization, if you don't know why you exist, then you can't then align the behaviors, approaches, and standards within your organization. And what you tend to find in those examples is lots of stuff being done because it's perceived to be fun or novelty or rather than it being purposeful, strategic and intentional. So come back to your point, what I do is I help, first of all, I help organizations understand that the activities and the approaches they take need to be aligned to their organizational strategy. And then I look through their organization to see where those are currently happening. And if they're not, how do we modify and nudge those behaviors, approaches, structures, organizational controls, etc., in the right direction? Okay. I'd like to dig into that a little bit more as we start talking through our conversation and exactly how you go about identifying those areas particularly as an outsider coming into a business. But I think first and foremost, let's just cycle back a little and talk about what employee engagement is and what that means to you and how that can be used to align to business objectives or why it's so important that that aligns to business objectives. I realize that's quite a broad number of things I've given there, but (laughs) you get where I'm going. I do. And actually, it's not too unusual, Sean, because the idea of culture and the idea of employee engagement sometimes feels a bit kind of abstract and it feels like it's everywhere in the business, but nowhere in the business. My view of employee engagement is that the purpose is not to create a great place to work. It's to create a place of work where great work is done. And it's a subtle difference in the wording, but what it means to me is that Culture is almost like the wind on your sails or the current in the water that helps blow your organization towards their strategic goals. So culture and strategy are intrinsically linked. The 
challenge that a lot of organizations have and a lot of people that hear things like employee engagement or culture is they immediately think of fun things to do. So you hear about such and such an organization has, has got a slide in their office or such and such an organization gives them half a day for well-being, etc. Those are all fantastic, what we call artifacts, activities that go on. My question is, do they help? Do those individual activities, those individual approaches, those individual changes help you deliver your objectives? If they don't, why are we doing it? It's just a fun thing to have. And after that fun thing has gone, after the incentive has finished, after the pay rise has gone through, after the beanbag furniture has been in for a few weeks, what next? How do you make it sustainable? How, how do you make sure that it's got a purpose behind it? So culture is the other side to the strategic coin. It helps you deliver your strategy. That's what culture is for me. Okay. Can you, this is maybe a bit left field, but can you illustrate that perhaps with an example? Uh, would that be okay? Because I yeah. think where I'm struggling is to see that connection. I think it'd be handy if you've got an example off the top of your head. Yeah, of course. So I use this, I'll give you two quick examples. One to show you how a mismatch culture can feel, and then I'll give you a contemporary example of it happening real time. So traditionally, people may look at employee engagements and think of a, imagine a workplace where there's a buzz and an energy and an enthusiasm and it's lively and vibrant. And every Friday we have a dress down day and we all go to the pub at two o'clock. And on a Wednesday, the top performers get to go into a wind machine and grab gift vouchers based on their performance. And isn't that fantastic? And you want to work there. Congratulations. You're the worst funeral directors ever. Your purpose of culture is to deliver your strategy. The culture that you have in the armed forces would not fit into somewhere that requires innovation. You can't have the soldiers trying new things and failing fast. You, it's a different environment and a different set of behaviors that are required. That doesn't mean that culture is bad. It just means if you put Apple's culture into the armed forces or the armed forces into Apple, you get a completely different, completely different feel of how we get things done around here. And that, in a nutshell, is the phrase for culture. If I give you a real example of the difference that culture makes, there have been some disputes going on with trade unions, et cetera, with the railways at the moment. And if you look at an organization like Avanti West Coast, who took over from Virgin, they have the same people on the same terms and conditions, in the same trains, the same stations, the same employee handbook. Everything is the same on paper. And yet the customer experience from traveling with Virgin trains versus traveling with Avanti is very different even though all of the written rules, all of the policies and processes, all of the people are the same. And that is driven by two things. First is, why do we exist? So what's our strategy, our vision, our purpose? And Virgin's was very much about, we know that people don't get on a train for the sake of getting on a train. They're going somewhere to meet friends, to go on holiday, to go to a business meeting. So our vision and purpose is going to be the holiday before your holiday. We're going to make your journey as seamless as possible. We're going to share information readily about delays and disruptions. And the culture that creates off the back of those, that vision, values, purpose, etc., means that the way the organization makes decisions, the way things get done around here, feels like Virgin. Avanti West Coast strategy is very different. So theirs is far more about how do you deliver return on investment to the investors, to shareholders, etc. And in that model, everything becomes a resource. Everything becomes a, a line on a P&L. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with making money as a business. 
But the values and the behaviors, et cetera, and the way we get things done around here at Avanti, even though it's exactly the same job, doing exactly the same thing on the same trains with the same people, is completely different fallout and experience to the customer. And this is what I work with with clients is it's not whether I'm not here to challenge whether your direction is right or wrong. I'm not here to stop you from making money and become more virgin. But if you're serious about this, how do you get the behaviors aligned so that the cultural wind blows against those sales and helps you achieve success rather than you've made these changes, you've changed your strategic direction, your employees are not engaged, and that's where the employee engagement is. And as a result, you've got friction, toxicity, and disputes and poor customer service, etc. that are the side effects of not having happy bees. Understood. So let me unpick that a little bit more then. So again, as you've been talking, I've been getting kind of Simon Sinek vibes start with why. Presumably, therefore, it's incredibly important for across the entire employee base, everybody understands and is at least aware of that why. Is that a fair assessment of that? Yes. And I temper it with my second mantra is that nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. So they're not intentionally trying to perform poorly. In the absence of that clear, why are we here? What do we do? What difference do we make in the world, etc.? People around the organization will make up their own mind, their own interpretation of what they think they need to do to make that organization successful, which is why in large organizations, you get kind of siloed tribal behaviors. The sales team behave this way, customer service behave this way, technology behave this way. They're not doing it because all salespeople are dodgy and customer care don't know how to run a business. They're doing it because of that absence of a why, that absence of purpose, and they're putting their own purpose into the work that they do. Excellent. So through that lens, let's begin digging into this a bit more then. How do you go about, so let's do a hypothetical. You go into a business and the C-level group are all really clear on their why and their purpose. And this is what we're out to do. This is our business objective. This is our business vision. How do they go about communicating that in a way that is meaningful and impactful to their staff? Great question. I'll give away some industry secrets here as well. Just because an organization as a whole understands their purpose doesn't always mean that the leadership team are all on the same page and allowed to contribute together. So the first thing that I'll do when I spend time with an organization is assess the environment and the kind of social group dynamics of that leadership team. They're not the only thing that informs culture, but they are incredibly influential in the culture. And it may be that you have attracted certain types of people in terms of how they think, their sort of cognitive diversity. So actually your C-suite, your board, do they have enough diversity in how they think? Do they have the environment that allows people to challenge and say, you know, I don't agree with this or I need some help? Or have you got the type of setup within your organization that actually gets in your way? If I give you a quick example, I worked with a client that required innovation. They were aware of this. Their strategy was very much around, we've lost our place in the market. We've become a challenger. We now have to behave like a challenger and be disruptive and be innovative. But the way that their organization was set up was the chairman, the CEO, had one person that was responsible for a particular sales channel, a different person that was responsible for another sales channel, a different person that was responsible for an overseas sales channel, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those people, because of the way the reward and recognition programs are set up, were kind of benchmarked against each other. So they were inadvertently in friendly competition with each other. 
So the organizational structures, both in terms of how the team was set up, but also how objectives were set, the language that was used in kind of pitting them gently against each other, meant that you stifled innovation at the top level straight away. Because there was no way the UK guy was going to share his best examples with the Irish guy, etc. So I'm conscious this is a long answer, but it's a very, there's not a silver bullet, so to speak. So the first stage is understanding what is that environment and how does it allow for the behaviors that you want to manifest elsewhere in the business? How does that kind of role modeling work within your cohort as a leadership team first? Second one is then let's get in amongst the kind of weeds and let's have a look if there is evidence of your strategy, of your vision, of your purpose elsewhere in the business. So in the case of Virgin, if you say you're the holiday before your holiday, if you say you're all about customer experience, then it should be easy to spot examples of where customer experience is given the priority. If you're launching two propositions, one has a better experience but will cost more, and the other one is cheaper but will generate more revenue, it should be a no-brainer that you go with the one with the better customer experience despite it costing more. If you don't, that cultural evidence, the difference between or the disconnect between what you say you're about and what you're actually about, that's what your employees start to feel as something doesn't feel quite right. It feels that there's a dissonance in what we say we do, what we actually do. And that's where you start to get people quietly quitting or going, this isn't really for me or it's not quite what I sold on for. That happens quite a lot where leadership teams change or a company is acquired or there's a, a merger and acquisition. On the back of that then, how, so I don't quite know the best way to frame this, but presumably within that environment, within an engaged senior leadership team or set of employees, were there to be events or scenarios such as the one you've just described in a healthy and engaged environment, people would feel presumably empowered to voice those concerns. I'm guessing that on the other side of the same coin, if there's a fear of speaking up or if there's a culture of you do as you're told, that's massively damaging to any kind of cultural shift that you're trying to achieve. It does depend on what the culture is you're trying to achieve. I know this sounds like a controversial statement before I say it, but I don't believe that there are good cultures or bad cultures. Culture is a tool, a tool that helps you achieve your strategic aims. So in that sense, the tool either works and it matches what you're trying to do, or it doesn't. It mismatches what you're trying to do. In the example I just gave where the organization has inadvertently created a hierarchical culture, that would be perfectly fine in the armed forces. The benefits of that culture are clear line of sights in terms of responsibilities and accountabilities. You drive specialization, so you're not going to do much, but you can do it really, really well. There is a high level of trust. I'm going to do my job and I just trust that everybody else does it. So you get very low kind of political infighting, etc. So that's a really, really great culture for anywhere that needs crisis control, crisis management. The challenge is that when you have that type of culture in an environment that doesn't require crisis management, then you get a mismatch. So it's not terms of good or bad. It's first is, what are we trying to achieve? Why do you exist? Right, now let's go and how can we create the environment that's going to maximize the opportunity to deliver that? I work with clients to help them understand that it's not, good culture is not the funeral directors. Culture is the tool. Does the tool do what you want? Okay, understood. So. Let me expand on a thought I had as you were saying that then. And I'm going to, here's another one for your word list, zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. 
There is something of a cultural zeitgeist at the moment within, certainly within the industry in which I operate, which is around employee engagement, customer experience, and the what some would rightly or wrongly call the fluffier side of the business. I get a sense that that's been driven by the events over the last three years since the COVID-19 pandemic hit and we moved to a hybrid model office and many more people working remotely. Is that something that, do you feel that's a fair assessment? What would you say to that in response? It's a really interesting point. And I've given this some reflection in the past because I think there's probably three parts to this. The first part is one of the things that COVID has done in terms of empowering employees is it's helped people to realize that the old ways of working that were often kind of, we were just told that's not possible. COVID has now forced us to say, oh, actually, it is possible. If we wanted to let you work remotely or wanted to let you work hybridly, then the organizations, some organizations could have done that. So that's kind of pulled back the veil of trust almost for employees to say, hang on a second, you told me that this wasn't possible. And then as soon as it's a necessity on your part, it is possible. What else is possible? So that has reduced, I feel, potentially some of the trust between the employee kind of psychological contract. The second part is employers have not always been the quickest to respond to change in the macro environment. It doesn't matter what the situation is, but there's almost a revert to type mentality that happens after any major change. So for me, there's an opportunity that COVID's presented that hasn't been there before. So pre-COVID, organizations have a huge amount of data that says Danny performs at this level when he's in the office. We now have a second data set that says Danny performs this way when he's not in the office. So if we wanted to, we could be very smart in comparing what environment and what context suits Danny as an individual and encourage him to do more work at home because you're better there, etc. Instead, we're seeing that revert to type mentality of everybody back to the office or everybody back to the office two days a week or just these departments back to the office. And I think there's a real opportunity to use that insight a little bit more scientifically to drive the decision-making because at the moment, with that lack of trust in the employee-employer psychological contract, the way that the message is kind of percolating across to your people is presentee is important. We don't really trust you to work at home. We trusted you when it was a necessity, but now you need to come back. And that's incredibly damaging. And there's so much more we can do. And the third point is it's a very privileged position. 82% of UK businesses and UK employees cannot work remotely at all. But this conversation has dominated the the headlines. It's all over LinkedIn. It's on HR magazines. So it's a very privileged position that now that it affects kind of white-collar workers, it's all over the airwaves. And I think we also need to be careful that when we're engaging our employees, 82% of them do not have the ability to work remotely. So what are we doing? Are they getting lost in the kind of melee of all this news? And what are we doing to make sure that they are still strategically aligned to what we're trying to achieve as organizations? Understood. So let's take it back to our hypothetical. (laughs) There's a lot there, Sean. (laughs) We'll let that simmer. Yeah, I need to digest that one. And while we, while I digest that one. Quick one. Employees don't necessarily trust as highly as they did. Employers are still a bit stuck in the past. But most of our employees don't even, it doesn't even apply to, they've, they've still had to work and will continue to work non-remote. Okay. So with that scenario, we've got a company, company X, whoever they may be, 
who have a clear goal and objective and a business directive that they want to achieve. They have an engagement or a culture that is at odds with that in some way, shape or form. You mentioned earlier on at the start of our conversation around what one of my previous guests has referred to as nudge theory. So I just want to unpack that a little bit. And how do you go about doing those nudges, identifying which nudges to do, what small improvements you can make? Because any big seismic change, you can't turn the Titanic around without first lots of small increments. So where do you begin? Stage one, as I alluded to earlier, is the leadership team. Let's go and see, because they're at the helm of the ship in your metaphor, they have the most influence over when and where the ship decides to turn. So do they have the right environment to allow for whatever behaviours we need, whatever structures and processes, etc., we need? And do we have them bought in so that when changes are made potentially elsewhere in the organisation, they've got senior stakeholder engagement as well? So first stage is always within the leadership team. Second stage is then a bit of a finding mission of understanding what approaches do we have within the organisation bearing in mind the whole time that nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. So if things are happening that are misaligned, what is it that's driving that behavior? And quite often there's there's a couple of smoking guns that appear in most organizations that have these kind of these challenges. So first one is comms approach. So what is and isn't told? When's it told? What's the governance around it? Do we just tell everybody everything and expect them to pick out the bits that are important? Do we dominate with content rather than context? So do we explain why this message is important rather than it just being another piece of information? Second one is leadership approach, and that's both active leadership. So what are they physically doing, but also passive? What are they tolerating? What If somebody does a great job, does it get spotted? If someone's doing things that are aligned, does it get spotted? And the third one is reward. So what extrinsic motivations are being used? We know that pay is not necessarily a motivator. It's kind of a hygiene factor. But there will be other things, there may be bonuses, there may be share options, pensions, incentives, all sorts of stuff that may be encouraging behaviours that are supporting or detrimental to whatever that goal is. And there's a wealth of other things as well. So first stage, what sort of environment do you have in your leadership and where do you need to go? Second stage is what kind of environment, what things are, are encouraging your people today? Third stage is then understanding your people. So... If we know, for example, most of our people are introverted, then if we're going to work on those reward and recognition programs, we know that big awards is not the right way to motivate or engage those particular cohorts. Similarly, if you were using something like Myers-Briggs and you identified that your people are very structured and stable and like objectivity, then your comm strategy, if that's where the investment is, can't be abstract, wishy-washy. It has to be purposeful, focused, etc. So understanding your people means that you can then, when you're building a roadmap to take these people from this environment to this environment, you can be very tactical on where to invest to get the most kind of juice from the squeeze, the most investment. You've just said something that's really triggered me. (laughs) Not triggered me as such, but it's triggered a thought. And I suppose that's around knowing your employees, knowing your collective. You mentioned Myers-Briggs. I recall doing a quite an in-depth personality profile at one of the businesses I I worked at previously, and it was kind of taken aback by how in-depth it was. And I remember (laughs) that being quite transformative on a one-to-one basis with people that I interacted with. Are you an advocate for things like Myers-Briggs for understanding at a cultural level or a collective level what the predominant factors are across the employee base? Genuinely fabulous question, because 
although I use psychometrics, you have to be aware of the blind spots that they provide. For example, if you use Myers-Briggs, identifies whether someone's extrovert or introvert, whether they're structured in how they organize or if they see abstract patterns, whether they're a, a logical decision maker or a feeler. However, the, in the West, we have a bias towards wanting people that are friendly and gregarious and will shake everybody's hand, but also know what they're doing and are organized, but are emotive and in touch with their feelings. So there's, if you're self-reporting, there is a bias for how you're filling it out as an individual. The second is the way that a lot of the statements are written in your results are a bit like a horoscope, but they can apply to more than one person. It's called the forer effect. So... Am I an advocate of psychometrics? They can be a useful tool as one of your indicators. And I use Myers-Briggs and DISC and Clifton, et cetera, but generally on a wider population basis to say, broadly, are most of our people in this kind of cohort or this kind of cohort? If they're used individually, you need to temper what that insight is telling you because of the bias, because of the way that the kind of Barnum 4 effect reads Yeah, so I don't take it as gospel. Certainly do not recruit based on it. Do not plan people's path through life and their future career steps based on whether you think they're a D or an I or whatever it might be. That's a recipe for disaster. Yes, I would agree with you wholeheartedly on that. (laughs) I'm going to piggyback of that and ask another question then. I probably can guess the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is there an ideal mentality for the employees of any given organization? I would say hopefully not. And again, this sounds like a bit of a strange answer, but I feel that organizations, even if they don't feel that they need change, I think they benefit from having different people, different cognition in their organization and the environment that allows people to contribute those different cognitions. And that's the essence of inclusivity. So inclusivity results in diversity. So if you have the right environment and people are allowed to contribute without fear of ridicule or reprimand, That's how you create inclusion and inclusion, the output is diversity. One of the challenges that I see today is that people often start with diversity. How do we recruit people that look, love and worship different to us? But if you haven't created the environment, then you just end up with a kind of those people contribute to this kind of boys club that's always been there and don't realize what culture they've got and are impervious to the change because the culture kind of supports them. Is there a specific mentality? If I were to say yes, then that would imply that that's almost a culture fit. I think there are a lot of organizations that use culture fit today as a way of justifying easy recruitment processes. You just fit straight in. I have to be mad to work here, but it helps. I feel it's a gnat's whisker away from discrimination of if you're only recruiting this type of person, then it's a little close to discrimination for me. So to answer your question, I don't believe so you have to work on the environment to allow everybody to contribute their unique gifts. Yeah. I've, again, to kind of piggyback on that somewhat, I've seen people cautioned, C-level people cautioned, um, particularly at the CEO level, about having a leadership team that are too similar to themselves. And they lack that diversity, which then means that they have too many blind spots, which I think is an important point as well. If I can just piggyback. So I saw a client client pitch last week and met their C-suite who were all 30 to 40-year-old white men, all of them. However, there was a huge amount of cognitive diversity within the room. So you had a mixture of people that were risk-averse versus goal-orientated, that were intuitors versus sensors, to use the Myers-Briggs. 
And it, we have to be careful. Representation absolutely matters. People need to be able to see them, their heroes and people themselves in positions of authority. I'm not diminishing that at all. But if you don't have the environment to create inclusion, you will never get that. And you'll be focused on, does the wrapper look different? And to use it a different way, if you look at the cabinet, the cabinet have been held up as one of the most diverse in history. Yet, and this isn't about the politics of what's going on at the moment, but if you look at the talent attraction process that the Conservatives have, they recruit from a particular talent pool that have got very similar backgrounds. Once they're in the organisation, the reward and recognition programmes are set up to amplify certain behaviours and approaches. When you get to ministerial positions, you are rewarded further for taking on additional roles and whips and parliamentary private secretaries and so on. So when you get to the cabinet, you may have people that look different or a different gender, etc. When there are complex issues that need solving in the world, you've created groupthink where everybody toes the line, there's no challenge to authority, there's nobody that can say, actually, that's a bad idea. So it's not the Tories are trying to crush the poor, it's that they don't have the cognitive diversity to enable them to deal with complex ideation that's needed today. And the irony is, if the Greens were in power, it would be exactly the same challenge. So how do you create the hive? How do you create the environment that allows everybody to contribute safely rather than recruiting to type because it's more comfortable for us? Yes, that does land, shall we say. I get where you're coming from with that. <laughs> also, sidebar, kudos on the B pun with the word hive. I like that. That was good. I like that. So I'm conscious of time. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. So I'm going to close off with a double-barreled question. So over the years, you've been kind of coaching, building the structure of many businesses. First and foremost, can you tell me a... I'm going to challenge you. Can you tell me something that really shocked you that you discovered over the years? And dot, 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 what does that mean for Fiergoon's future and how are you going to tackle that? Oh, so I have to dig into some great head memories, I think. So there's a few things that have shocked me over the years, but they tend to be of a similar vein, that they're all linked to limiting beliefs. So everybody sees the world differently based on their, their path through life. And the more time that you spend with people from who have experienced life different to you, the more alien some of the viewpoints can be. And we see this in some of the binary arguments in politics, etc. today. But actually, we've got far more in common than a few limiting beliefs. But one of the things that shocked me, I was having a conversation with a group of HR people about recruitment and some of the challenges around recruitment today. And there's apparently a talent shortage, and there certainly are skill shortages in some areas. And a phrase came up multiple times across the group about, do you think that young people, as in millennials, etc., expect different treatment? So do they expect to be, there's one example that young people don't read contracts, whereas older groups do. And that shocked me a bit. And I did call it out in the session because youth age is a protected characteristic. So would we feel as comfortable having that same conversation with, do people from an ethnic minority background expect to be treated differently? And the second part of that was, do we, as a group of HR professionals, as leadership teams, as people who are influencing policy within our organizations, do we need to challenge our limiting beliefs? Because there, are, as with any of these limiting beliefs, there is a little bit of truth in there. Different people do want different expectations. However, not everybody does. I'm old, I don't read contracts. <laughs> So how do we make sure that we don't fall into the 
in full foul of ourselves in stereotyping others, and more importantly, stereotyping others that then you leads to policy decisions being made on the back of it. So that was quite shocking just because of the it made me realize there's much more work to be done around inclusivity if you still have these beliefs that certain people are expected to behave or work in a certain way. Absolutely. Yeah, I really like that example, actually. And that ties into everything that we've spoken about across the course of the last kind of 30 minutes in terms of the work that Fiergun does. So, yeah. The largest challenge that I have on the back of that is the limiting belief that employee engagement means employee fun. It doesn't. It's engaging people in your strategy, in your purpose, in your vision. Hopefully that is fun as well. We're not saying that it should be a slog, but converting people's mindsets that running a business is not just about profit. You have to balance the needs of the plans and the people as well to make that kind of triple bottom line. That's the largest challenge at the moment is helping organizations realize your people are your biggest asset. You should invest in those rather than just throwing beanbags and pizza Fridays at them. You can do that strategically just like you would with anything else that required change in your organization. Excellent. I think on that note, that's a great place to end off there. Again, Danny Wareham from Fiergun. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Likewise, likewise. It's been a lovely, lovely afternoon, Sean. Thank you. Thank you very much. Talk Time is brought to you by Max Contact. To find out more about Max Contact and how our customer engagement software can help you and your teams provide smarter customer experiences, visit maxcontact.com and book your personalized demo today. Be sure to search Talk Time with Max Contact in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and leave us a positive rating to help other like-minded individuals join the conversation. Finally, before you go, never miss a future episode by clicking the subscribe button and turning on notifications. On behalf of the team here at Max Contact, Thanks for listening.